The nonprofit sector is hungry for conversations and resources on leadership transitions, especially those that involve founders and long-tenured executive directors. These transitions put organizations at their most vulnerable, and far too often boards, and founders for that matter, don't know what they don't know. Because there is such hunger for the insights and resources, this is actually part two of a conversation we began last time with a leading expert in the field. In part one, we talked about the remarkable nature of founders. What is founder syndrome? And how to get an organization, a board, and a founder ready to leave. In this episode, we tackle the next phase, how to follow a founder and be successful. I often joke that far too often the executive director that follows the founder is kind of like the transitional girlfriend after a divorce, a few years later before the real deal actually comes along. My guest today is actually more diplomatic than I am, calls it the accidental interim. It's time to tease out the pitfalls. Should founders stay involved? Does that ever work? How can boards set new leaders up for success and what should they avoid? This conversation and these insights are invaluable because nothing, and I mean nothing, rocks an organization quite like not one, but two transitions in short order. Have a listen and then share this conversation, this podcast, with as many board members as you possibly can. It may be the single most important lesson they learn in order to get the job they do just right. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, gets it. She is here to help. Rachel, thanks, thanks for coming back for another bite of the apple. I am happy to be back, Joan. <laughs> um, so, um, all right. We've gotten to a point where the board is now taking ownership of a search. And um, perhaps the founder has offered thinking about the kinds of person that should be considered, the skills or attributes. Let's assume the founder is not involved in the search process. Um, thoughts about that interview process. I, I have seen situations where uh, search where where uh, boards want someone who's just like the person they had, and then there's also situations where they um, they sort of feel like they should have somebody completely different. And I wonder how you advise um, search committees on boards to approach this notion of the big shoes to fill. Right. So, I mean, first off, I never. You know, I always say you will never find uh, that person 2.0, right? It, it's not it's not possible. It's not there. But there are aspects of that person's personality, leadership style, skill sets that the organization cannot afford to lose, right? Um, particularly if the organization has a certain culture or set of values that have really um, been the major contributor to the success of the work, right? Um, and trying to ensure that those values are embodied in somebody else is important, which is different than saying you want somebody like, you know, an exact replica 
Um, and so I think it's a fine balance. I, you know, I would say that, you know, I always suggest to, to executives, to, to boards, there's no formula for this. Yep. Uh, usually you're trying to just find middle ground. You don't want somebody so opposite <laughs> the the founder that could just cause wreak havoc, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but not somebody too closely aligned. So I, I just think there's no particular formula, but I think it's important to really unpack the aspects of the founder's skill sets, personal attributes, and values um, that you really want to see embodied in a new leadership team. And, and sometimes it's not that it will be embodied in that new CEO, but that it needs to be somewhere across the leadership team in an organization. Uh, yeah, I, I, I spend a lot of time working not just with CEOs, but with their direct reports. And I, um, I often uh, try to make this shift for them that they're not just simply direct reports. They are people that are leading with the CEO. And Correct. so the notion that the CEO has to carry all the characteristics is Honestly, it's completely unrealistic and it diminishes, honestly, the value that your leadership team members bring to the table for the board to say, you know, here's the deal is we're going to hire a new leader and they're not going to be all that. They're not going to come with every bag of tricks and you have a certain kind of skill set and you have one and you bring this certain kind of attribute. And what we're trying to build is a, is a group of people that lead together. And I, right. I, I do feel that takes the heat off. It takes the heat off the board to find the Messiah. And Absolutely. It, and it also really, um, I don't, it's just such an acknowledgement to the members of the leadership team that they are valued at a time when the when it all feels just a little bit bumpy. Right. And, I, you know, and I would say to that, like, I think in many cases, boards will say, oh, we want somebody like, you know, we want the clone uh, because this person has done this, this, this. And, and the reality is that that really is not how they have been leading, right? Like some of the most entrepreneurial ideas may have come from the vice president or the CFO or the, right? And and those talents have not yet been highlighted. And so the board somewhat gets this false impression that it's this one person that's been carrying the organization the entire time. Uh, what do you see as, <clears throat> I see a big mistake that boards make quite often, and I wonder if you agree with this and what other ones you see. Um, it's a lot of work to do a search. It's a lot of pressure. And um, I feel like I see often that um, that boards select the best candidate of a mediocre lot and do not go back if they don't think they have a rock star in their yeah. pool. I wonder if you see that and what oh, other what other yeah. things you see. So I set expectations around that that stuff pretty early. So what I say to boards is we will not artificially advance candidates because you have this number in your head about the number of interviews. Um, And in many cases, when we get to the top two candidates, I wouldn't say many, but in some cases, you know, if if neither candidate is sitting well in our gut, um, I'll say, 
let's go back, right? Um, and I'll tell you, every single time that's happened, it it always worked out for the best. Um, yep. One, there's this assumption that if you go back, it means you're starting over from scratch and then it's another six-month process. That is not true. Um, your filters are aligned. You have a stronger sense of, of what you're looking for. And you find that when you go back, you still end up wrapping up the process in probably a month to six weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's daunting. People put a lot of time, but but I always suggest don't hire an accidental interim. <laughs> Take your time. Ah, so so I call it the transitional girlfriend. You call it the accidental interim. I probably yours is probably more politically correct than mine. Um, the um, I think the other piece of that is right is if you've gone through the search and you come to the best of a mediocre lot, you're not really starting from scratch because you learned a boatload, didn't you? Uh, you learned so much. Yeah, I, I and so framing that as a search consultant probably makes makes it feel less like oh my gosh we went all we went through all that and this person's okay but not great and it's kind of yeah both of both it's like I want to check this box and get back to my day job and it's also right. like really this is the best we can do right it's like I get the question all the time how many people should be on my search committee do I have to have an odd number so that if there are any tie breaks and I'm like you know. If we get to the end of this process and we need a tie break, you have not hired the right person. That is so so true. That is so true. I personally don't care if it's seven or six. Um, You know, we don't do that kind of, uh, you know, those kind of splits that that won't work for your next hiring your next CEO. Well, and let me also say, um, I wish that boards were not leaky, but boards are leaky. And new executive directors always find out. They always find out how always. close the vote was. And it sits with them, yeah. um, right? A client that feels like they have to prove themselves to three, you know, to, to a third of yeah. the board comes yeah. from a place of, of insecurity rather than yeah. strength. Um, let's talk about um, let's talk about what I see a lot, which is founders and the long-term executive directors who probably overstay their welcome a little and in so doing create a real hunger for change in the for the person that they hire set that they're just hungry for the change that they couldn't seem to get out of their founder and that um do you see situations where that hunger turns into a sort of a a pressure to make changes mm-hmm. too quickly? And what's yeah. that, what does that look like when you see it? Yeah. So, you know, we, I actually see that quite a lot. Yep. I see a lot of organizations that feel like, you know, we do good work, but it's somewhat stale or it may not be as responsive to the needs of our communities. So we want somebody to come in and just like change, change, change. Um, and then you have a new person coming in and they're eager to yep. like change everything. You know, so my advice to new executives, I've been actually working more and more with new executives who followed founders or transformational leaders. And what I've said to them is it's one thing to want change and it's another thing to be able to actually um, swallow it, right? Um, So I will do a lot of um, coaching on 
the different phases of change. I use a lot of William Bridges's model um, around transitions, and I provide that to a lot of the new executives. Um, because in many cases, the staff, the board, they have not yet been operating at that level. <laughs> well, or, or how about that. this, is that they don't actually see that things are particularly, quote unquote, broken. They don't have that same hunger. And so somebody comes in, they hire somebody who they believe is going to be a change agent, right? Because that's what they're looking for. Right. But the culture of the organization, they've been, they've been going along quite exactly. fine. Thank you very much. And, and they it's don't, hard to change culture. Right. And you, and they're sitting there going, I don't I don't understand. I, I You know, I've always thought that our organization did good work and you want to make all these changes. I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah, and even and then it, it it will come across as we have a new leader who doesn't respect us, respect our hard work, respect our history, oh, and yes. that that happens even when a staff wants change. It's again, change just seems like this big thing. You just say change, <laughs> but but when a new leader starts to make some of those even incremental changes, it can be really stressful for that organization, and so it has to be well paced. Well, I also think that. There's a couple of things I think about these things a lot. Um, I need to, if I work for that organization and I think it's a pretty good organization, somebody comes in and wants to make a lot of change, you've got to draw a pretty damn clear vision for me of what this organization can be as a result of those changes. I think it's one of the biggest problems people make when they make changes is that the buy-in is around hey, we're moving from point A to point B. Point A is good. Point B is great. And this is what it's going to look like. And don't you want to go on that journey with me? And if you ignite people's energy about going to B, then they're going to be able to handle the navigating the journey of change that gets you there. That that feels really, really important to me. Yeah. Um, And, you know, one of the things that I really push boards in in search processes to identify is is a candidate's emotional intelligence. Because what we're talking about is that candidate's ability to, um, you know, have a certain level of emotional intelligence to be able to, to empathize, to be able to kind of meet people where they're at, to right to be able to communicate, to be responsive. And, and so if a, if a leader goes in with the best professional background that there is and all the academic accolades, but they don't have some of the kind of emotional intelligence to know how to navigate um, change and navigate kind of this new environment, then they'll get swallowed up in that process and, and no one will be happy. Um, there's a, there's another thing is I, I, I often, you know, so I also work with CEOs following founders and I remind them that they probably will never have as much power as they have at the very beginning yeah. that the board's so invested in their success. And this is the time to say, I get that you waited a long time for this organization for, to move from point A to point B. But I'm here to tell you, if I move too quickly, right, right that there's not going to be buy-in around that change, that this group doesn't understand. They, don't, they, think, they're, they think things are good, maybe even above good. And you're going to have to give me time. Right. 
And I, and I oftentimes feel like new CEOs who have these dreamy jobs, they're, they're not really willing to push back on the board and say, wait, 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 wait. If I do what you tell me, right? <laughs> that, yeah. that could happen at this organization's peril. Yeah. They're in this very vulnerable spot because they want to show that, yes, I was the right person to be hired. They want to, you know, so it's, it's hard. So my advice also is to ensure that the relationship between the new CEO and the board chair is as solid as they come. Um, I tell all my clients as they're preparing for a transition, who will be that seat, who will be that board chair? Right. Because in many cases, a new CEO will need to kind of bunk some of these ideas or concerns off of one person before it's brought to the, the entire board. And so you, you want to have um, some support to, to be able to push back on the board so it doesn't seem too much like also versus them. Well, uh, and uh, I know we're talking about it in the other direction, but your, you know, your interview with a board, you have got to really dig into who this board chair is. Oh my goodness. The chair is the, the, the um, tenure of the chair when you, the, the systems around communication um, that, that they'll expect. I, I think another thing that, that new executives need to do, we, we call it a, a board CEO leadership agenda. And it's something that we do in the first three months of that new person's tenure mm-hmm. where we say, these are the priorities of the organization. What's the board's role in advancing and what will the CEO's role be advancing? And how are we going to dialogue with each other? What are our pet peeves? So you almost get it all out yeah. <laughs> very early. Um, and then what are ways that the CEO will be communicating regularly, progress and vice versa, the board communicating to the CEO. So, so I always encourage that very formal conversation within the first three months so that you can set some expectations. I, I, um, I do a variation on that where I put the, uh, the co-pilots of the twin engine jet together in a room for a couple of hours and talk about what do you want this relationship to look like? And as a result of your partnership, a year from now, what do you want to be able to say you did together? And then then share that with the full board so that they get buy-in around that as well. Um, I have just a couple of, uh, just a couple of other questions. And um, uh, let's talk about, let's talk about founders or executive directors who stay involved. So so, uh, oftentimes boards panic and say, let's find a role for the founder so that we don't lose that person. Um, Others will say, oh my goodness, no, 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 no. That founder needs to stay, you know, far away and let the new CEO really, um, uh, you know, sort of set their own agenda. Um, which side do you take or is there a third? You know, I say it depends. So I found that the, the candidates, the CEOs who are internal candidates who have worked alongside and have a really good, healthy relationship with a founder, um, I find that when they take on the CEO role, they have no concerns about that person playing a role over the course of even up to a year. Um, the one stipulation I think that 
CEOs, rather, whether or not they're internal or external candidates will say is there has to be some physical separation. Yep. So the founder should not be in the office with that person. But mm-hmm. I found that internal successors who had a, a good relationship tends to be a little bit more open. Um, but even in a situation like that, I always recommend that that person play a role in defining what that role will be, what that founder's role will be. Um, external folks, you know, usually my preference would be that there is um, maybe a consulting agreement where there is stipulation that if this new person needs me, I'm, I'm available for X number of hours mm-hmm, over mm-hmm. the course of six months um, to schedule meetings, to hand off relationships. That's a, that's a contractual arrangement that that founder then reports to that CEO as a, a contractor. That's usually the cleanest and easiest way. Um, what I do not believe in is a board promising <laughs> um, prior to even in some cases launching a search that the founder will have a long-term role and that that founder will continue to report to the board. Yep. Or that founder will then transition to be a board member. Um, I don't agree with that. But but usually I talk to the founders themselves about why it's not healthy for yes. them to have that type of a relationship so that they can proactively say to a board that that would not be a good practice to put me on on the board or have me be on staff for an experience, you know, an extended period of time. And that is all goes back to what we talked about in our first part of our right. discussion, which is does that founder believe the narrative that the organization has been built to last? Right. Because if they don't actually believe that narrative, they're not the people that are going to go and say, I shouldn't have a role there. Right. right? So, it, you know, so there's so much psychology here. Um, I've, I guess I have one last question for Rachel Gibson, our expert on founder and long term executive director transitions, a senior consultant at Markham. Um, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. We talked about, I asked you about trends that you're seeing. Um, and you, you said oftentimes as people head out the door, they just offhandedly make some comment to the board like, don't forget, we need to have a commitment to racial equity. And it, right. dro- you know, and it drops in the board's right. lap. With, yep. And it's like, oh, uh, okay. Right. And I, you know, it's funny. I just did a, I just recorded a podcast with a woman named Frances Conroyder who runs the Building Movement Project and probably one of their um, most prominent pieces of study, uh, studies is one called Race to Lead. It was in 2016. They're actually redoing it in 2019 this year. Um, and I just wonder, what is it boards are, I mean, clearly that's, you know, clearly this is an important issue, but um, what the, you know, so how do boards contend with that to best effect? Yeah, it is. So I hear that all the time. I mean, I can't even count the amount of times that <laughs> the term, even the term racial equity has yep. come up only when a search is about to be, um, when a, when an executive announces that they're leaving. Um, so I have been doing a lot of work over the past year on 
because I have a diversity and inclusion background around a racial equity lens to um, certain transition processes. You know, you have to, this is one of those things. If you really want to be an organization that is truly committed to an equity lens, that has to be ingrained in your DNA and the executive needs to be working alongside board, staff, clients, stakeholders um, very early um, to really integrate that lens. There is so much anxiety happening around a transition that when you then layer on a new <laughs> a new concept for some board members around um, race and equity and gender and and all these these things and identities that it it really jars folks um and it does not do anyone justice um so i highly encourage if an organization is firmly committed to advancing um, their work through an equity lens, that the conversation starts early, that the board gets some training. Um, I work with a lot of my clients around just unconscious bias and how does that play out in a search process and how are we going to check that check for that. Um, but I don't want to be talking about issues around about unconscious bias um, during a search process where the board had never heard that term before. Completely. Right. So, Right. This is that there are CEOs watch listening to this podcast start very early on that with your boards. Well, that's it goes back to it goes back to what we talked about in part one, which is which is culture. Right. Is that that is that you have to actually introduce the culture to this intersectional lens and get people reading and having one on one conversations. And that's that's not the. Oh, by the way, you should make sure you have a big pool of candidates of color. Like, right. like that is not the key to success. And that's not what it's all about. Yeah. And I think also being able to enter into authentic conversations with candidates, right? So if if your if your organization wants to advance and deepen their work around equity and you want to hire a new leader who can can set the organization in a forward um, path you have to be able to engage in those conversations during the process and be able to vet a candidate's um, own values around that. So, so true. And and so if you yourself, if the concept around equity is new to you, then you are not able to really assess a candidate's ability to do that. So so what then happens is... (laughs) The candidate meets with the top two candidates meet with staff. Staff in many cases are further along in this journey than boards. And the staff peppers the candidate around their values related to equity. The candidate walks out of that room feeling completely blindsided. Yep. Um, and the reality is, is that the board advanced candidates who did not have firm values related to equity. Um, and could not have a conversation around it. So it's it's not something to wait to to, to tackle at the last minute. Um, it just it, it's it's not the right way to do it. Yeah, it uh, it is. It's a systemic problem that has to be actually addressed in a systemic way, not just an oh by the way. You should make sure that you have candidates of color in the pool, right? It's 
um, it is it so sells short the magnet the profound magnitude of the systemic and unconscious bias right that we because have. you have to say to you know when we reach out to candidates of color it's not just saying we want a diverse pool but here's why here's yes. why it's important for us to have people of color advance in this work here's here's what this would mean for our movement um it's not about tokenizing yep and right, I think far too few boards really can articulate that why. Right, and, that's and, the issue. And it is incumbent upon our sector to help build the capacity of the board and staff leadership to be able to have good conversations that allow that why to surface and allow that why to become part of the DNA of all the people who are part and parcel of an organization that does important work. So um, we are at, we are actually out of time. Um, and uh, I just want to say again that uh, getting outside support uh, um, doesn't necessarily have to cause an, cost an arm and a leg. There are lots of different ways to do this, but um, going it alone is um, you do so with a great amount of risk. These transitions are putting organizations in their most vulnerable states often. And to not have a chaperone, a guide, someone like Rachel who's been around the block a long time and knows and sees and understands the psyche of founders, understands the the terror and anxiety of boards, um, you know, that's a, that's a priceless person to put at your table. So I hope that you'll go to Markham, LLP.com and, um, and start to think about and read about these transitions. Because by the way, if you've got a founder or a long-term executive director, it's, it, it shouldn't surprise you that one day they're going to leave. It's That's sort right. of, it's, <laughs> it's, it's sort of like, you know, when it gets to, to, when it gets to my birthday and my kids say, Oh my gosh, I can't believe it's your birthday. I didn't get you anything. And, yeah. and I'm like, you know what? My birthday falls on October 9th every single yeah, year. Yeah. You had, you had from October 10th last year until today. To be thoughtful about a gift. And the same is true with transitions. They don't sneak up on anyone, you know, unless there's an emergency situation. So don't let it catch you off guard because in 99% of the cases, it isn't going to. Seek out resources. Um, I hope that you found this podcast helpful. I can't imagine you didn't. Um, seek out folks like Rachel, look for other resources um, and get it right because so much is counting on a transition like this going smoothly. So Rachel Gibson, as always, so fun to talk to you and to tap. This was great. Thank so, you. So great to be able to tap into your insights and share them with people. So I'm going to let you get back to the good work you do uh, and say thank you. And as for the folks who've listening, I'm going to let you get back to the great work that you do. And um, as always, we can't thank you enough. And the last thing I'll say is people like Rachel and people like me and a lot of the guests I have on this podcast, um, we actually we actually do our work to make your work better to strengthen your capacity to 
to do the good work that you do. So please remember how many wonderful, skilled people are in your court, are champions for your success. So thanks very much again, and we'll see you next time. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at JoanGary.com, reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.